Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. The president and congressional Republicans have promised tax reform by the year's end. We talk about tax policy, health care policy, school shootings, and protests in today's episode. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today, we're discussing the shooting at Freeman High School in Rockford, Washington, protest in St. Louis and the Graham-Cassidy health care reform bill. We'll then take a closer look at tax reform and, as always, end the show with what's on our mind outside politics. And we're still asking for shout outs. We've gotten several really great um, voice memos about your nuanced relationships. So if you're in a quote unquote divided marriage or partnership, please send us a voice memo and you can just email it to Sarah at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. We also are less than $100 away from our oh my monthly God, it's goal. Killing me. It's, it's killing, killing me. me, too. So if you would like to hear us do a series about living in a nuanced way outside of politics, please head over to patreon.com if you've already done that, or especially if you increased your contribution this week. Thank you so much. We've had a really positive reaction, and now I think we're at $99 away, and I really hope that we can get there. Um, so I wanted to start the show with an interesting little uh, personal political story. So last week I posted on uh, Rand Paul 
uh, had an amendment to end the authorization that's existed since the war authorizations that's existed since September 11th. I'm very supportive of that. I posted about it and I said, I voted for Rand Paul and I don't regret it. And, you know, he makes me regret it less often. And he um, and some people in my local Democratic Party saw this. Not surprisingly, I posted it publicly and went to a private fa- or Facebook group that we have for sort of like progressive women around our community and like vague booked me. So they were like, I just, what do we think about a democratic leader saying they voted for Rand Paul? I mean, I think they should basically resign from party leadership. And so everybody was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, hi, it was me. I did it. Um, I'm not ashamed of it. And um, if you want to kick me out of the democratic party as one of the like, you know, couple democratic elected officials in our town. Sure. Go for it. Um, it was interesting. A lot of people came to my defense and said, you know, if this is the test, then I don't want to be a part of this group. And, you know, it was just, it was so interesting. I just think this whole idea of like pure ideological tests, which is something we talk a lot about on the show, you know, are silly. They're not getting either party anywhere. In fact, they're making everything worse would be my current argument. And, um, yeah, it was interesting. I think the most interesting part is that in a town the size of Paducah, anyone thought that they would be able to, like, pose this question hypothetically. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it just I the group itself is not small, like it's gotten really big. But still, I mean, I just don't know why you would. You know, just if you if you have a problem, I wouldn't even have minded, honestly, if this person had just called me out by name on the group. Right. Um, it would have been better that way, I think. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't I, you know, if she wanted to have a conversation with me, but she wanted to have it in a public way. Like, look, I'm not embarrassed of public conversations. I have them twice a week with you. But like, you know, if you but just to just to do it the way that she did, it was ridiculous. And, you know, I don't feel when I first voted for Rand Paul, I will be honest. I was like, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to do it. Know that I did it. Know that I stood up for my principles of sometimes we have to cross party lines and, you know, I've not been, am I, do I agree with everything Rand Paul does? No, but I find him principled every time I ask him a question in person, it makes me feel even better. And then sort of as I went on, as is often the case with me, I talk about everything. So I started talking about it and, you know, I just, look, I get the idea that like, if you're in that, cause I am in the executive, I'm like in the executive committee of our crowning democratic party. And if I was out campaigning for Rand Paul and raising money for Rand Paul. Yeah, sure. But I think I gave money to Jim Gray. And I really like Jim Gray. But I made, you know, I knew that Rand Paul was going to win. I sort of make it, made a calculated choice. And, you know, I just... <sighs> whatever. I think it's good that you stepped up and said, hey, it was me. I'm giving a talk tomorrow on having hard conversations. And I have like an outline of basically 10 principles for having difficult conversations. It's skewed toward the workplace, not so much in the political context. But one of my things that I really believe, especially when you're delivering hard messages in the workplace, is that you have to really check your intention And I think what works for you in having these very public conversations about difficult things is that your intention is always like, let's just let's get this out here. Right. Let's work through it. Let's be honest. Let's not personalize any of it. And I think that's why you're able to show up and say, yep, that was me. And here's my thought process in a way that isn't confrontational. Well, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, we, we'll have a Democratic meeting soon, so I wonder if she'll bring it up and they'll, and they'll kick me out. I'll report back. 
Yeah, I hope they don't kick you out. I think that would be their loss. Yeah, I agree. There was another school shooting that was, I think, underreported last week. So we wanted to start off by sending our love to Freeman High School in Rockford, Washington. This is a rural area of Washington. Caleb Sharp, who is a 15-year-old sophomore, walked into the school with an assault rifle and a pistol. He killed one student and injured three others. A janitor who was also a military veteran named Joe Bowen actually stopped him and probably saved a lot of lives. So very heroic action in the midst of real tragedy here. Sharp had previously threatened suicide and was working with the school's counselor who who knew that he had threatened suicide. And he later told police that he was there to teach a lesson about bullying. There were two other mass shooting incidences last week, um, both from sort of disgruntled um, ex-relationships that I also thought were underreported. And it's so disturbing. I don't know if this is happening because sort of our political environment is taking up all the space. I think, unfortunately, as, as you know, heartbreaking it is for me to say this as a victim of a school shooting, that they, they have become commonplace and they're just not impactful in the way They used to be people aren't shocked by them. It's just sort of become the background of our country, which is truly tragic and truly disturbing. But I honestly don't really know the answer to that. I mean, they get worse and they worse and people are I just think I feel like, you know, people have just accepted this as a reality of being in America because there is no political will to change um, gun laws. And there's even sort of a certain acceptance that the changes we do want to make wouldn't impact a lot of this. And that's just. It's really, really, really tragic. This one is particularly disturbing, I think, because people knew that there was a person who posed a danger to himself here. They knew that he had guns. He has posted YouTube videos with guns before. He had delivered to his parents a suicide note. Now, again, I'm not trying to blame anyone or certainly to say anything hurtful in a situation that is incredibly tragic for absolutely everyone involved. I'm just wondering, short of gun laws, which we've talked about before and which I am in favor of, what can we be doing to better receive the messages people are sending us? Mm. Yeah, I don't know the the answer to that because... It feels like putting another process in place always leads to, you know, processes aren't perfect and they either we overcorrect or, yeah, we often overcorrect. And it's like we need something more dynamic than just like, you know, an alert process. But I don't that's so hard when you're inside institutions that are concerned about liability and concerned about exposure with regards to sort of legal overreach. You know what I mean? That's right. And you, you know, you don't want to increase separation for people who are already clearly feeling separated in ways that, um, accelerates a violent reaction. So I think it's really hard, but you do have to wonder, like, can we enhance our sense of community in a way that sees some clear distress signals like this and responds to them accordingly? Similarly, we had violence uh, break out in St. Louis this week. St. Louis is 10 miles away from Ferguson, Missouri. So um, issues like this are not new to this area. If you haven't been following this story closely, 
a white police officer was acquitted of first degree murder for killing a, a black man during a drug stop. That stop happened in 2011. Anthony Smith died in 2011, and prosecutors have been investigating what happened since then. The police officer said he thought that that Mr. Smith was reaching for a gun and acted in self-defense. Prosecutors say that the police officer, Jason Stockley, planted the gun in Smith's car to cover up his actions. The police officer's DNA was found on the gun in the car, and Anthony Smith's DNA was not found on the gun. It wasn't clear from video footage that was taken from multiple angles at the scene that the police officer had actually planted the gun. This case is was really surprising to me because it was decided by a judge in a 30-page opinion, which is unusual. What happened is that the police officer waived his right to a jury trial. Hmm. Well, and, it, you know, it's not just that he – they the gun and the the gun stopped, but that the facts of this case are so disturbing and that they chased him down. There were multiple shots. You hear him saying, telling his partner, we're going to kill this mother. And, you know, it's very disturbing. There was a really good sort of uh, Twitter thread that we'll link in the show notes that where someone laid all the facts out of the case. But, you know, I'm just back to with all of these that we have a standard that is, impossible to breach with regards to these cases, which is basically if the cop felt threatened, everything they did is okay. And the cop can tell you what the the only person who can prove disprove that they weren't threatened is a cop. So, I mean, you'd have to have a police officer stand up and say, no, I didn't feel threatened. I just felt like gunning him down. So I don't, (laughs) that seems unlikely. So, and it seems like not a legally legal standard at all that basically what we're saying is um, we're giving sort of police officers, um, a standard that as long as they feel threatened by their own minds, then they can, you know, make these choices or act at will. And, you know, no one's arguing that police officers um, don't deserve legal protections for the risks they take as first responders and safety officers. That's not true. But this standard is, I think we, again, we've overcorrected, we've gone too far and we all acknowledge that, you know, this is a problem. Well, at least lots of us acknowledge that this is a problem. And, you know, and to, but I don't see that, you know, I, I just don't see the solution until the legal standard is changed. Well, here's the other thing. We have put prosecutors in an impossible dilemma because as communities, we ask prosecutors to charge first degree murder in these circumstances. And we are not getting first degree murder convictions, and we're probably not going to because of the legal standard you just articulated. The judge in this case explicitly said he did not consider lesser offenses because of the way the state charged it. And Mm. so do we want to see conviction where there is guilt on a lesser standard and give prosecutors some public support around charging a full gamut of offenses, or do we want to continue to have acquittals? I mean, that's kind of where we are. Right. The court's ruling in this is also really tough to digest. Um, the, The judge at one point was saying that he thought the officer's belief that a gun in the car was reasonable because, and this is a quote from the opinion, an urban heroin dealer not in possession of a firearm would be an anomaly. Oof. Oof. Yeah. That's the sound I made when I first read it, too. Yikes. Um, he also 
took that we're killing this mother uh, language and said, well, people say things under stress that they don't mean. And so basically just, the result is one side deserves every benefit of the doubt. The other side reser- receives zero benefit of the doubt. That's my which takeaway one, that. On one hand, that is our system, right? Yep. That is our system on one hand. And on the other hand, you have to wonder about the bias inherent in those assumptions. And so it's just mm-hmm. th- these are just really hard cases. And this is all happening in St. Louis, where many St. Louis neighborhoods struggle with high unemployment. There is a lot of crime. It ranks near the top for the nation in terms of crime levels. There's poor access to public transportation and people are tired. It's it's a really hard situation. And Kara Spencer, I pulled this quote out. She's a local official, said we need jobs for people. We need counseling for kids who see homicides all the time on their blocks. Ferguson was inspiring, but frustrations are still bubbling. St. Louis is failing to provide basic services. Mm. And so that's the backdrop that leads to this violence. I do want to say, though, that every day that this has been happening, the daytime protests are peaceful. It is at night when it turns into chaos. And now more than 80 people have been jailed. The mayor's home was hit with paint and a window is broken. There is also some disturbing reporting about how police are responding to this violence. Mm. There are some really ugly videos floating around. I saw a report from The Guardian this morning that some police officers were chanting whose neighborhood are or whose street our street, something like that, um, kind of mimicking the protesters like that's not helping. No, no. I think that St. Louis has systemic problems that um you know, and they're not, they didn't start the nights of the riot, right? The, the riots are always in response to something. And that doesn't mean that lawlessness is acceptable, but it also doesn't mean that we um, ignore the sort of outside influences that played into that manifestation of lawlessness. So, you know, because I think that so often riots are a response to, you know, the laws don't treat me fairly, so why should I respect the laws? And I'm not saying that's an acceptable attitude. I'm just saying that um, we can't sort of reach out and try to solve a problem that we refuse to sort of see the basis of. Yeah, I think that's right. It sort of reminds me of, I feel like I quote Brooke Castillo in every episode these days, but her thing about you can argue with reality all you want and reality always wins. Mm -hmm. And I think the conditions that surround every single incident of a police shooting, we can we can continue to fight about them and we can continue to defend police forces. But we've talked before about how both things can be true. You know, police officers can be dedicated public servants and systemic problems exist and communities be positioned as powder kegs. So another thing that I think is being somewhat underreported is that Senators Graham and Cassidy have put forward a sort of last ditch effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Now, here's the reason that this is suddenly becoming a an urgent matter for Republicans. TikTok, so- TikTok, baby. That's why. That's right. September 30th is the deadline to do this under reconciliation, where Republicans would need a simple majority instead of a two-thirds majority. Otherwise, they would have to actually pass legislation through a normal process or do an actual budget, both of which would require working with Democrats. 
The other thing is Republicans really need a health care law to get done in order to make the baseline budget scoring for tax reform work. If you don't deal with the cost associated with the Affordable Care Act and then you start talking about massive tax cuts, the cost of your massive tax cuts is going to be infinitely higher. And so those, I think, are the driving forces behind this conversation. So Graham Cassidy is pretty similar to um, the BCRA that we talked about when Mitch McConnell was trying to drive this process. And I'll just run through sort of the the high points or low points as you might <laughs> perceive them. So Graham Cassidy takes the money that the Affordable Care Act had used to fund Medicaid and subsidize exchanges. So if you're on the individual marketplace looking for a plan and your income is below a certain threshold, remember that the Affordable Care Act subsidized your premium. So you got some money from the federal government to help you buy those individual plans. So instead of the the money going in the direction of Medicaid and those subsidies, Graham Cassidy gives block grants to states and lets states decide what to do with the money. So if a state liked the way its individual market subsidies were working, they could continue to do that. Theoretically, a state could also design its own single payer system or a state could do whatever else it wanted to with that money. Graham Cassidy also allows states to opt out of many of the Affordable Care Act regulations, and that's pretty significant because it changes the way pre-existing condition coverage works. Um, a state could – you still can't ban people from receiving coverage based on pre-existing conditions under Graham Cassidy, but a state could go through and allow insurance companies to take certain treatments for pre-existing conditions off the covered services. So it's kind of, I think that's a little bit sneaky and I don't like that provision. I think if you're going to change the pre-existing condition coverage, you should do it in a more transparent way. Um, it also allows states to define what essential health benefits are. So things that plans must cover. And that's where you get into um, a lot of women's health issues. Now, so Graham Cassidy is being touted by Republicans because they're saying, look, this is federalism. We're just going to give the money over to the states and states can decide what works best for those states. However, the money for those block grants gets cut back over time. And in 10 years, it hits zero. And 10 that is years bananas. is not a long time. That is bananas. I don't understand how this bill is going to get any support. It's like the worst versions of all the other bills. Yeah. So this bill also eliminates the mandates, both the individual and employer mandate, and states could then decide if they want to mandate coverage or not. It does keep young adults being able to stay on their parents' plans through age 26. Let's see. Insurers can charge older people three times the regular premium under the Affordable Care Act. So that's the existing law. That um, increases to five times under Graham Cassidy. It allows for higher HSA contributions And here's another really significant part of it. Beginning in 2020, Medicaid would be funded per capita and federal cost sharing for expansions of Medicaid would go way down. So that when you see people talking about capping Medicaid, that's what they mean. There is also, and this just infuriates me, a one-year funding freeze for Planned Parenthood, which is just like, hey, here's a little red meat for you base in a meaningless way to the base over the long term and a really harmful way to Planned Parenthood in the short term. This bill has to – it was introduced last week. 
It has to be scored by the CBO and analyzed by the parliamentarian to see if this can actually be done under reconciliation or if it goes farther um, than reconciliation rules allowed. And then it has to be litigated within the the Republican Party, which, as we know, can't agree on anything, <laughs> and then put in the on the floor in less than three weeks. So I want to say that, one... It seems really unlikely, but two, the motivators for getting this done are extremely powerful. So if you are opposed to this legislation, you should exercise the same level of opposition that you did to previous versions. Yep. Well, see, now my con- my senator, well, I don't even pretend like Mitch McConnell represents me, but Senator Rand Paul already voted against or already said he's opposed. They think Susan Collins opposed. That only leaves one more. I got to believe Murkowski won't be in favor of this. It's the block grant stuff that really upsets me because that's been so detrimental to our social safety net with regards to welfare. Just the idea that like, we'll just give the states um, the funding and, you know, look, healthcare has been a huge topic of discussion in the last few weeks. We haven't really discussed um, Bernie Sanders plan for um, healthcare for everyone that came out. There was also a lot of conversation with regards to Hillary Clinton's um, book release about how she felt about this program and what she thinks would work. So I've I've been hearing a lot about all this, um, you know, solving the healthcare problems in our country. And I just, every time I listen to this, either um, the, the repeal and replace efforts, the single payer medic, you know, Medicaid for all or Medicare for all, whatever it is, it just seems to me like we're all still dealing with a symptom without dealing with the problem, which is the cost of health care in our country. And so I just don't understand. And maybe there is a solution where in which we all get it. Once there's universal coverage, there is some solutions that we that can play out to the cost of health care. But You know, the problem with the in particular, these um, Republican proposals to repeal Obamacare, replace Obamacare is that it doesn't it goes no further at all in helping people afford health care. It oftentimes makes the insurance more expensive and it really doesn't do anything to address the cost of health care. And so I just I don't see how in any scenario it just doesn't make everything worse. I think Graham Cassidy is such an illustration of how we've lost sight of the goals. Yep. Exactly what you were saying. This isn't about lowering the cost of health care. This is about entitled re- entitlement reform and spending reform. And I think those issues need to be addressed. It also is about feeding different constituencies to try to get something done. That yep. Planned Parenthood freeze is a good example of that. Another one, though, is the block grants. So if you are a real federalist, the block grants only halfway appeal to you. So you would like the idea of states being able to do what be- works best for those states. But the other side of federalism is and those states should pay for it. And here you have a situation where you've got people who are who are more purist in the federalist sense saying, well, wait a second. Why would the entire United States contribute to states having single payer systems within those states? And other states having all this healthcare money spent on other things, right? And so now I'm subsidizing what some states want to do. I might not get the benefit of it. So mm-hmm. it's just like a little bite of federalism instead of, if you know, really going in that direction. I think when I think about the the idea of states doing their own thing on health care, there are things about that that appeal to me. I'm not sure from a pragmatic standpoint 
that post-Affordable Care Act that's possible. Mm. If we had tried to do something like this before the Affordable Care Act, I think that it would have made a lot more sense. But I do think the Affordable Care Act so federalized the healthcare system, I, I'm not sure we can realistically ratchet that back at this point. Well, and here's the thing. I think, In a responsible way. I think so often in governing, it is important to compromise. Let me be clear. I think it is very important to compromise. However, this bill is the worst manifestation of that, which is yes. it's not compromise. It's deal making. Yes. Let's just take a little bite for everybody and we'll all end up worse off. That is not a compromise worth making. In order to legislate and govern well, I think often and to really solve big problems, it's not about, you know, making everyone happy. It's about making your case and using the power of the people to convince the other party. You know what I mean? Like instead of getting around the people and we'll just make everybody a a little bit less or a little bit miserable instead of really proving like, no, this is the big solution. This is what will work. This is what we're going to try to make happen. And, you know, I think some of the problem with, you know, how this goes down now in our current, not just polarized environment, but because there's been so many limits on sort of pork spending and um, sort of passing out federal dollars. I mean, that's how FDR and that's how LBJ got stuff done. They passed out projects. They passed out federal spending. There's such a limit to that these days that, you know, I think that so instead of passing out projects, we pass out like policy. But that makes really terrible policy when you're just like, well, I can't give I can't give you a federal project, so I'll freeze paying parent spending for a year. You know what I mean? I agree. Maybe a good way to summarize that is that this is a visionless bill. Mm-hmm. There is no vision here other than I think in a very and I hate to be this cynical, but I think this is about nothing other than setting the table for tax reform. Yeah. And I think that's not a good vision for healthcare policy to state the obvious. And it it would be so much better to just say we couldn't get this done this year because it's yeah. really complicated and we want to do it right. I think that you can trust the voters to hear that message. And if you can't, then that's on us. You know, we have to stop pretending that legislators are working on a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, they're not. The context really matters. So speaking of tax reform, um, we're going to compliment the other side and then move on to our discussion of upcoming tax reform efforts. So my compliment for the other side this week is for, are you sitting down? I am. Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I like Elizabeth Warren, but yeah. That's a big one for me, though. So Elizabeth Warren, I really like the work that she and I think it's like 13 or 14 other Democrats are doing to create a bill that would provide for consumers to be able to freeze their credit without paying a cost to do that. And the reason that you might need to freeze your credit is because your identity has been stolen. And I think it is insane that Equifax and other Mm -hmm. providers of credit can compromise all of your data 
and then charge you for the benefit of hitting pause to sort out what has happened. Seriously. And then there's this other thing that Equifax is offering, like a free data protection plan or something to people who were affected by this breach. But it's only free for a certain period of time. And so it's possible then that people will continue on with that and then start getting charged for the service. So Equifax might profit from its Uh. own data breach. And Uh. like, listen, I am a capitalist. I believe in people making money. I believe in people making money based on loaning money. But that is a bridge too far. <laughs> that is a bridge way, way too far. So I commend the work that Elizabeth Warren is doing. Well, on look, this. this is her sweet spot. Consumer protection. That's right. Um, in the, particularly in the financial industry, this is where she knows her stuff. So it doesn't surprise me. And I'm sure she speaks eloquently and passionately about this as she often does. I think that is her like sort of really, 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 um, sweet spot of where she, does her best work. Well, you know, I think that connects back to the comments that we were you were making about Rand Paul at the beginning of the show. It is good to have some niche senators. Yeah, like it's I agree. good that she has this expertise. It's good that Rand Paul has this um, relentless passion about the authorization of military force. <laughs> yep. the, you know, separation of powers matters on war. Like it's it's great to have those senators who can really do the work around those topics. Agreed. So my compliment is for Congressman Hurd, who was on Pod Save the World this week, and I really enjoyed his conversation. He um, used to work for the CIA, and he talked about how important he thought it was that um, Congress people understand the difference between, you know, like Sunni and Shia, and how he had this meeting with Congress people, and they were like, "What's the difference?" And he thought they were setting them up for a joke. So he was like, "I don't know, Congressman, what is the difference?" And he was like, "Oh crap, no, you're actually asking me. You don't understand the difference." Oh. <laughs> and um, he was just a very thoughtful guy. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. We've complimented him before on the pod. He's sort of, um, I think, an upper cover in the best possible way. So good job, Congressman Hurd. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick-dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days, and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. 
They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. So today in the suit, we're going to be discussing tax reform, which is the next legislative item on everybody's agenda. I loved this kind of snarky description from Forbes magazine that tax reform can be defined as the name applied by politicians to any tax change that they favor. (laughs) And they said that uh, there's a publisher of tax guides that tracks, quote, tax reform And since 2001, Congress has enacted 5,886 tax reforms. Oh, yeah. It's really helped, clearly. Yeah. So tax reform is hard to, again, say something that is the understatement of the century. Um, And we thought we could do just a tiny bit of history on this. The tax code was first devised in 1913, the modern tax code. And that's when the federal income tax was created. In 1913, the federal income tax only affected the super rich. And the code just became more complicated and affected more people over time. And then in 1954, Dwight Eisenhower signed legislation streamlining the tax code. And that's when April 15th became tax day. And then we started making gradual changes. And over time, it became a mess again. And by 1986, it was time to do another big reform. And that's when Ronald Reagan and a Democrat, Tip O'Neill, worked together to really simplify the system. And this is from an article that Ryan Lizza did in the New Yorker, the New Yorker, which we'll put in the show notes, which was so good. But he said, as T.R. Reid notes in his new book, A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System, each of these last two successful reform efforts came after a 32-year interval. In 2018, it will be 32 years since the Reagan-O'Neill reforms. 
Well, we're due then. I guess we're due. Um, the other question that I had coming into the research for this discussion was how much of the federal budget is made up of individual and corporate income tax. And so I found from the Tax Policy Center that about 80% of federal revenue comes from individual income tax and the payroll taxes that fund our social safety net. 9% comes from corporate income. Yeah, I spent a lot of time on taxpolicy.org, the uh, Tax Policy Centers, um, which is the Urban Institute and the Brookings Institution's Tax Policy Center. And I thought it was really helpful. And I learned a lot about sort of um, where our taxes come from, um, where the money's spent. So one of the most interesting things sort of I kind of fell down a hole about was tax expenditures, which is, you know, basically it's where the government spends through the tax code. So it's big, big areas in which we don't either through subsidies or deductions or credits don't collect taxes and sort of the politics of so many of those. And, you know, they're hard to, it's sort of like a, you know, once, once they have them, once you have that deduction, like mortgage interest or a huge, the biggest one I think is not, um, the tax credit on health benefits you receive through your employer, um, which was, it was just, it was interesting to think about not Taxes, not just through what we collect, but also what we don't collect, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So, and, and that's really relevant to what the president has proposed because he, especially on the campaign trail, said often that his plan was to do big tax cuts that are paid for by reducing those tax expenditures. We're going to take out a lot of these deductions. That's part of the simpler, fairer, you know, here the rates are going to come down, but deductions are going to go away too. So does it make sense to spend a second just talking about like the process and what has been put on the table by the Trump administration? Yeah, definitely. So Republicans want to do this via reconciliation. That means they have to have a budget first. And there are major obstacles within the Republican Party to getting to a budget that everyone agrees on. Moderates want to increase domestic spending. That's where you see people like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski wanting more health care spending, for example. You have people who love foreign policy wanting to increase the Pentagon budget. That's where you're like McCain's and Graham's fall. And then you have your Tea Party types who want to slash everything. So a gang of six has been quietly working on tax reform, not so quietly now, but for quite some time. Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, Steve Mnuchin, who you might remember um, released his bullet point tax reform plan at a press conference that looked like it had been written on the back of a napkin. <laughs> Gary Cohn, um, Orrin Hatch, because he is the Senate finance chair, and Kevin Brady, who is the Ways and Means chair. And... This is from another Forbes article that I thought was really great. There's just one thing you really need to know about whether tax reform will happen by the end of the year. It's about to take a very small group of senior policymakers more than six months to agree on the broadest of principles for what a tax reform plan should do. And the broad principles will be the easy part. Mm. And that has been that seems to be consistent with where the reporting is right now, because very few things have come out as sources of agreement, and there is a major source of disagreement that has been reported. So Paul Ryan has been talking about these issues forever because this is Paul Ryan's sweet spot. And he has been talking about a revenue neutral plan, meaning that cuts for individuals and corporations would be offset by increases elsewhere. His offset is through a border adjusted tax 
which would equalize the treatment of imported and domestic goods theoretically. There are a bunch of problems with this. And the most um, compelling problem that I was able to pull out of my research is that it is wicked complicated Hmm. and nobody really understands it. And the retail lobby is vehemently against this because retailers depend on imported goods. And they say, if you start taxing imported goods at a higher rate, then consumer prices are going to have to go up. And so whether that's true or not, the border adjusted tax basically has no support and has been taken off the table. So now you have people who have to decide, do I want a revenue neutral tax cut or do I just want a tax cut? Um, Orrin Hatch has talked about shifting the corporate tax burden to shareholders in order to help pay for um, the slash that the president has proposed to the corporate tax rate. So you would just, you know, shareholders of a corporation would be taxed at a higher rate. The corporation itself would be taxed at a lower rate. That's something that we might want to just spend a second on. You know, when you create a, a C corporation, you are agreeing to double taxation. You get taxed at the entity level and then all of the individual owners get taxed as well. That's a super simplified version of that. And so that if you hear about corporate integration, that's what that means to try to shift the company's tax burden to its shareholders. That is probably not going to fly in the House of Representatives. So Trump's plan, which I am creating air quotes as I say plan because I think it is just so um, simplified and conceptual, and again, pretty divorced from reality, is to lower the corporate tax rate from 35 to 15%. That sounds good to people who would be inclined to agree with that. One issue, though, is that almost half of corporations pay no tax because mm-hmm. they just pass those taxes through to their shareholders. And then the rest of corporations usually find a way to get to about 15% as it is because they hire lots of tax professionals to help them do that. Well, and I saw this um, graph that we'll include in the show notes from the Tax Policy Center, and it's like the actual U.S. corporate tax rates are already far lower than the statutory rate in line with comparable countries. So the statutory corporate tax rate is 35 percent, but the in the U.S., the actual tax rate is about 24 percent compared to about 21 percent in G7 countries. U.S. multinational corporations pay about 28%, which is 1% lower than most G7, which is about 29%. So 35 is, yeah, too high, but nobody pays that. So, Yeah, so that's where you get into how much energy are we willing to spend on making it simpler um, so that if we had a 15% rate, people were actually paying 15%. And that seems like a, a steep climb. This lower corporate tax rate would also extend that 15% rate to hedge funds, real estate funds, and private equity. And that's where um, I think the ballgame probably is, particularly for this administration, just guessing, um, which would take most of those folks down from about 39% to 15%. On the individual level, uh, Trump has proposed taking us to three rates. Um, and I think that it would be better for us to just put a chart into the show notes than try to talk through this, how much this would actually impact what you pay is debatable and depends hugely on individual circumstances. The one thing that would probably help most individuals pay less in taxes 
is that the president has proposed doubling the standard deduction for everyone. So if you are married filing jointly, that standard deduction would rise from $12,700 to $24,000. And single filers deduction would increase from $6,300 to $12,600. So that's where you're probably going to get the most relief under the Trump plan. Sarah was talking about tax expenditures. The president has proposed eliminating all of those except for the charitable deduction, mortgage interest deduction, and retirement savings. And I would love to spend a second, if you're up for this, Sarah, just talking about those deductions philosophically. Sure. So my perspective, and this is going to sound harsh and radical, is that if we truly want a simpler, fairer tax code for all Americans, we should probably eliminate all of those deductions. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it seems to be the sort of, you know, T.R. Reed, that book you talked about at the beginning, that was one of his main, you know, the, it seems like no matter on what side of the aisle you are, everybody agrees it's too complicated. We cannot make it simpler and keep all these deductions everybody loves. It's just not going to work. So if we want a simpler, fair tax code, then everybody's going to have to give up some of these deductions. Well, I also think about this both as a person who believes in limiting government control and as a person who cares about like objective evidence in reality. I'm not sure that these have led us to great places. Mm-hmm. By having the government take on as a policy matter the fact that people need to own houses, That home ownership is great for us. You know, that didn't turn out well in 2008. Now, I understand all of the benefits of home ownership. I think that idea is time has kind of come and gone, though. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, one of the most interesting conversations I heard about um, healthcare, and again, the biggest tax expenditure program is the deduction for um, health, health insurance or health benefits you receive from your employer. So, I mean, it was crazy. It was like several billion, $200 billion or something. And, you know, we, if we are, that's a lot of money. It's a huge share of our GDP and we are subsidizing healthcare through that. We are spending government money just by not collecting the taxes on that. And so, you know, that if we all agree that linking it to employer, employer-based healthcare is a bad idea that we don't want all this government spending on health care. Well, then this seems like a way to start chipping away at that in a big, big way. Yeah. And so you have to eliminate that on the corporate side as well. So, you know, across the board, we take away the tax incentives for employers providing health plans. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we need to do. On the retirement savings side of things, I just think it would be simpler and better to eliminate the tax savings around retirement savings as well, because I feel like that is a penalty on poor people. Yep. And charitably, and this is the hardest one to talk about. I don't like fights over what is religion and what is charity. And I don't like the idea that, for example, the church of Scientology um, is included in the tax exempt status, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's because of my personal faith system. And that's unfair. It's unfair for me to sit here and decide that that's not really a church, but my church is. And I just, I think we ought to just get rid of 
all of the charitable and religious exempt statuses, I don't think for the most part that people give because of taxes. Now, I understand that there are going to be people who completely disagree with me about that, and that's fine. And maybe this needs to be some kind of step down, and we take a look at what impact this actually has. But I just, I think that this is government overreach in a way that advantages some people and disadvantages others. And that's just not consistent with my philosophy about what government ought to be. Well, and here's the other thing. The other part of that, the point that T.R. Reid is making that can't be missed is that that was the Reagan O'Neill plan. That was a bipartisan tax reform plan. And this, these that we've all talked about are solely Republican plans. So to me, what's missing from all of these and what I wish would come to the table is Democrats. And, you know, as a Democrat, what I would like to see is a more tax paced a more fairness-based tax plan based on not just earned income, but investment income. Because right now you have, if you inherit $500 and I go out and earn $500, you're paying almost no taxes and I'm paying a ton of taxes. Now, if we're going to talk about incentivizing work through the tax structure in this country, then help me understand how that's fair and help me how that understand how that promotes work and fairness through our tax structure. So, I mean, I think that that's the other big aspect of this missing from this conversation because you don't have both parties at the table, which you need for any kind of comprehensive reform. I think that's right. No one party can actually do good work on tax reform because it's such a personal issue. It's like healthcare. Mm -hmm. You're going to take an unbelievable amount of heat for whatever you do because it's hard. And I think we have really unrealistic expectations about tax policy because we all want to pay less, but we want more and better government services. Mm-hmm. And we want to chip away at the national debt. We can't have all those things. Nope. Not all we can't have all once. those things. That's a good point, though. What you just said, I don't, I want to emphasize that. It's like we all need to sit every congressional member of Congress down, particularly the leaders of the party, and say, yes, if you compromise, you will share some of the win. The win will not belong solely to you. However, neither will the heat. That's right. You won't shoulder all the heat by yourself either. So think about that. Think about if it might be worth it to take some of the burden and spread it around at the cost of some of the victory. Just saying. I agree. The the other thing that I think the tax code ought to stay out of is marriage. Mm-hmm. I, I think marriage and family should just not be part of this structure. Also, wake up. That's not the world we live in anymore. People don't get married. Exactly. And like, and I'm as a person who loves marriage and supports it for everyone, but thinks marriage is a great idea. But for better or for worse, that's not the way our culture is going. So why, you know, why are we penalizing people? And then one other kind of detail that I want to mention before we sort of do what we do and riff all over this is uh, the alternative minimum tax. Which I do not fundamentally understand. If somebody in our audience would help me understand the alternative minimum tax, I would be psyched. So the president is proposing to eliminate the alternative minimum tax. And, And what that means is that you can have a lower rate than your usual rate would be at a certain income level. But if you take that lower rate, if you opt to have that lower rate, you cannot deduct your state and local taxes as you Mm. would otherwise have been entitled to do. And it was like supposed to be just for rich people, but now it's like 5 million people doing it, right? I don't know the numbers on that. And I am not an accountant and tax law. Like I am struggling my way through all of this, but I'm really trying to understand it. 
Um, my understanding of the alternative minimum tax is that it serves people in states that have very high income taxes at the state level. Mm. So what the Trump plan proposes is to eliminate the alternative minimum tax, but it also eliminates the deduction for state and local taxes. So it's more like giving the alternative minimum tax to everyone. Mm. It's just saying you're going to have a lower rate and you can't deduct your state and local taxes. So to do here what we think is not happening in Congress, I wondered, like, what should the objectives of tax reform be? I think that, like we said, you know, the I really want to read this T.R. Reid book we keep talking about, but I've read several articles about it. I mean, his his proposal is sort of like, like, get rid of the elimination, make it simpler. I think the number one goal should be simplification of the tax code. Number one bipartisan goal. And a more... Uh, you know, a fair approach based on investment and based on income is something I would like on the list, as well as he talks a lot about um, a value added tax, which brings in more capital in a more fair way across markets, as I understand it. Again, not an accountant. Um, but, you know, I think that some of the big goals of making it fair, making it more simple would be good ones. And you know what that you know what? Maybe the list needs to be when you're talking about tax reform and we say, what are our big goals? The goals can't just be, what are we going to get? The goals have to be, what are we willing to give up? And maybe that's the conversation we really need to have. I asked Chad what he thought about tax reform just generally. This is my husband. And he said, well, I think it's pretty meaningless unless you're talking about the whole budget. Mm. He had a more crass and colorful way of talking about that. (laughs) But um, I think that's right. I kind of step like if I zoom way out, what are we really saying about money and government by looking at tax reform in a vacuum and then by looking at the budget off to the side in a perfect world? I think in healthcare, like we were talking about. Yeah. And I mean, I think in a perfect world, tax policy would be created based on the needs of needs of the budget. Like you would say, okay, we are in this conflict. And so our military needs X dollars and we're making infrastructure investments right now. So we need X dollars for that. And you would, you would line up the expenditures and then collect only what you needed to pay for those expenditures. Mm -hmm. But The competing objective is you need some stability around tax policy so people know that they can invest and people have some kind of predictability year over year. And so we've kind of gotten to this place now where we think that tax policy is a lever for literally everything that accomplishes nothing. Right. Yep. Agreed. And I think that if we, if you genuinely believe, as I do, that you can use tax policy as a as a lever to trigger investment. So you could bring some rates down and get an infusion of investment into the economy in a way that ultimately results in more jobs and higher wages. I think you have to be honest about the fact that you cannot do that and expect that result to happen if you are paying for it by starving the rest of the budget. 
Yeah. Like we're in an investment period or we're not. And if we're going to invest in those lower rates, we also need to invest in infrastructure yeah. and we need to invest in our healthcare system. And that means deficit spending. Now, I think over the long term, we need a plan to address that deficit, but I, I don't think it's honest in any universe or realistic in any universe to say that we're going to invest in our economy, but we're going to have it all be budget neutral. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, I don't understand how, I don't understand why the goal as our country grows and our world grows and becomes more complicated while the overall outlook is budget neutral cut taxes. How do we do that? How do we, you know, if money is a huge part of how you place your values and where you sort of put your priorities, then what are we saying when we want, when we say we want everything, you know, we want everything smaller. We want everything budget neutral. You know, how are you going to, for better or for worse, the federal government is a huge player in our economy. And I don't understand how, you know, we've talked about it from everything. I keep thinking about how we had that conversation about the senators and how we have this, we have a bigger, more complex set of issues facing our nation because of a growing global economy. And yet we keep cutting the budget for senators and staff. You know, like, how are we going to do that? And I don't, you know, we we sort of talk about that with the military, but why isn't that applicable in all areas of our country? If we just, how are we going to deal with a changing, you know, energy economy if we keep cutting the budget for the Department of Energy? And how are we going to deal with the glowing threat of climate change if we keep trying to cut the EPA? You know what I mean? I just don't understand how, as the world gets bigger and more complicated, if our only goal is to either keep it neutral and cut at all costs, how that works out. I just don't. Well, and so I agree with all of that. And the component that I would bring if you and I were sitting down to do this together, I think, is a sense of what are our priorities, because we cannot do all those things simultaneously in a fiscally responsible way. Okay, fair, and, fair. And I'm willing by, to give that. Yeah. And I think that's right. And that's I think everybody would be if we were having a rational conversation about this. But we can't because the other side is the enemy of America. So, yeah. And we because go. we have decided, I mean, pretty much all Americans have decided I should get to keep my tax dollars. And we've created a whole bunch of conversations around this that are just stupid. Yeah. Here's an example. You have middle class people who will argue until they are red faced about the death tax, talking about the estate tax. But the truth is the estate tax only applies to eight figure estates. Yeah. So let's be honest again about who this impacts and whether we're okay with that impact or not. And the whole idea of class warfare is something that we need to sit down and have a real conversation about. Yeah. You know, we, we need to have a real conversation about that. Not one that assumes a bunch of greed or a bunch of, um, theft, right? This idea right. that people just want to steal from me. Like that's, that's not where we are. Let's really talk about how we're funding our country. Well, and you know, Richard Rohr, who we also quote per episode now had a great email this morning. He was talking about how uh, prejudice against the poor was sort of the last acceptable prejudice. And I think you can't avoid co conversations about um, tax reform and spending without dealing with like, why do we carry that around in all conversations and our culture that 
um, being poor is a character flaw and that um, it is up to us through the through the um, sort of stick that is spending or taxes to punish people for their their socioeconomic standing. And so, you know, I don't I think that we um, carry that into all these conversations, too, which is hugely problematic. The other thing in his email that I thought was so good this morning and applied to lots of the conversations we've been having is that separation is the root of violence. When people lose their sense of connectedness to one another, that's when you go to a place of violence. And I think if you look at the whole class warfare conversation, that's a lot of what's going on. Yeah. Northern if you Kentucky. want to talk about if you want to talk about tax reform and only talk about your taxes, we're not going to get anywhere, y'all. If your only concern in conversations about tax reform is how much you individually pay in taxes, then we have a problem because that's separation. That's refusing to acknowledge that you're part of a whole. Yeah, that's right. Um, there are two things I want to say about that. One, Northern Kentucky, where I live, is one of the highest giving places per capita in the United States. It's just charity is a huge part of the culture here. And there are some very high net worth families that do a lot of that giving, but it's per capita giving. Like it's just part of the culture. And I think, yes, it is a more affluent area, but there is not that sense of separation. I see in our community this genuine understanding at all levels that we all have to work together to solve the heroin problem. We all have to work together to solve the affordable housing problem that we have. And so I think at that community level, we can get to a place where we're not just battling each other in terms of our socioeconomic status and that we need to bring that to the larger dialogue. Well, I think that is a good Ending point for our conversation about tax reform. Are you ready to move on to the heels, Beth? Sure. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, 
Whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So what's on your mind outside politics this week? You know, parenting continues <laughs> to be on my mind. Um, we had a weekend of my children not being the best versions of themselves. And Jane particularly had just an absolute meltdown in public, which has not happened a lot in her short time on the planet. And it was awful. And we ended up leaving the place before we were supposed to Woof. and um, having a conversation with her when we got back about like, you will never do this again. And we're going to learn some hard lessons this weekend. But what I wanted to bring up about this that I so valued is that I took her back to the place where this happened and asked her to apologize to one of the adults who was affected by her behavior. And she did. And she did a good job of that. And I told her, I, you know, I prepped her for that, that this isn't about shame. This is about responsibility. And you want to be treated like a, a big girl, she tells me all the time. And big girls apologize. And there's nothing wrong with that. I said, mommy apologizes 10 times a day, probably, because we all make mistakes. So she apologized. And the adult, instead of minimizing what happened, which I think is the adult reflex, no big deal. It's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. The adult said, I forgive you. Thank you for apologizing. Oh, it's so good. Oh, I was so grateful. I was so grateful that. For person that person gets bonus points. You get yes. adult bonus points. And we have to start doing that for each other, I think, because I feel so undermined as a parent yes. when I'm out somewhere and I'm disciplining my child in some way and another adult, you know, like if I say, no, you can't have that. And the other adult goes, well, she, you know, she can. It's okay. Yeah. No, it's not. Like I'm doing my thing here and I need you Please. to support me in that. 
So my children were um, had a struggle week at school. They were also not being their best selves coming home on yellow and orange. So I, I was I was really in a, a bad mood on Thursday. So I just brought down the hammer as I'm apt to do. And I took away every single screen and the Alexa out of their room and put them in the locked locker and said, both of you have to be on green for five days in a row before you can have that back. That means if Griffin's on green and Amos is on yellow, we start back at zero. What? Oh, my God. And it was like all this <laughs> all this uh, rendering of clothing. And then, um, then, so we're screen-free starting Friday. They both came home on green, and we had a screen-free weekend. And it was amazing. They were so good. They were, like, being their best selves. Like, they were going on scavenger hunts. And they were building treasure hunts for each other. And they were building Legos. And they – we. They got to play the game of life at my parents' house, and they were doing plays for us, and they did a couple um, little, like, little plays for us. And then they both, like, went to bed on time on Sunday and then slept in this morning, and I think it's because their little brains were so energized from their little creative weekend. And I thought, man, why don't I do this more often? Like, you think, look, the reality is when there are no screens, you have to parent more actively, which sometimes when I'm tired, I like to put my kids in front of the TV and get in front of my own screen. Let's just be honest because I'm tired. But when I do, like when I'm forced to like, no, don't just be like, hold on a minute when they're hungry. Actually get up off your butt and go get them a snack so they don't climb the countertops and get their own candy out of the top shelf. You know, when I just like am actually in it with them and paying attention to them and making them the focus as opposed to sort of keeping them occupied so I can do what I want to do. So much better results. But it's just such a hard lesson to learn. Well, it's so much better. And then it gets back to that balance that we talked about last week of I don't, that doesn't mean I program for them. That doesn't mean I create their right. play. No, right? I don't. It just means that I'm here and present with their play. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I want to talk about was the Emmys, which I did not watch because I was finishing a very good book I highly recommend called Dreamland Burning, which is a young adult novel about the Tulsa race rights. So good. Y'all should read it. But um, I went and looked up all the winners and all the, you know, the Stephen Colbert opening monologue. And it was such a good night for women and people of color at the Emmys and some programming that I really love and wanted to recommend for people who haven't watched it. Donald Glover made history. He won. He was the um, I think he's the first he was the first um, black man to win outstanding directing in a comedy and the first outstanding lead actor in a comedy of color to win in like 20 something years. And if you guys have not watched Atlanta, which is his series that he's winning all these awards for, uh, go make it happen because it is so killer. And what's really awesome um, also is that Aziz Ansari's show, Master of None, he won and then for Outstanding Director for a drama series. And then uh, Lena Waithe, who is his co-star, won for this amazing episode called Thanksgiving in the second um, season. She's a woman of color and she is hilarious and wonderful. And I just really realized how how much the the sort of landscape has changed and how my favorite in particular sort of short form comedies are all three um, directed and starred and written by people of color and different voices. I watch Insecure, I watch Atlanta and I watch Master of None and they are all probably the most brilliant TV I've taken in in the last year. And I highly recommend all three. Um, Issa Rae didn't win anything, but that show was so good. And her and her friend Molly. Oh my God. It's like one of my favorite relationships on television. So um, I just thought that was really positive and, you know, uh, Big Little Lies one, which is a all female cast. And, um, I just think it was really, really a cool night to see so many different faces. Although speaking of different faces, Julia Louis Dreyfus, I love you. I think you're brilliant. I think Veep is wonderful. Stop putting yourself in for consideration. I'm tired. You've won like 18 Emmys at this point. 
It's not that I don't think you're brilliant, but dude, can we recognize somebody else? I'm over it. That's all. That's my whole thoughts on the Emmy. (laughs) I have nothing to add. (laughs) I I don't think, I think I was looking for reality competition and it was the voice. It was not any of the ones that you love that one. So sorry. No, oh, and last week ones, tonight with John Oliver won. That was too cool, too. The ones that I love are trash and shouldn't win Emmys. That's just that's where it is. <laughs> I'll be honest about that. Oh, and Elizabeth um, Handmaid's Tale won, which was really cool because it was a streaming service. And uh, and also because Elizabeth Moss won. And I love Elizabeth Moss the most. So it was just a really cool night. A lot of people I really like won and, and made me happy. And there's probably a longer conversation to be had about the looming president's presence over oh, the Lord. Emmys and Sean Stop Spicer giving him attention, that, y'all. But. Yeah, we're, but we're out of time and yeah. we appreciate you joining us for another episode. Thank you to those of you who have left reviews last week on the Apple podcast player. That really helps us and helps new listeners find Pantsuit Politics. So thank you for that. As always, we want to thank our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina. You can follow us on social media at Pantsuit Politics on Twitter, Pantsuit Politics on Facebook and Instagram. And until Friday's episode, keep it nuanced, y'all. 